Hello, it's Wednesday 2nd of March. I'm Hannah Pearson. Welcome to part five of our two years of travel disruption series as Gary Bauman and I chat with Singapore-based Brent Anderson, Regional General Manager, South and Southeast Asia for Tourism Australia. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in. So here we are in March, which marks two years since Southeast Asian nations began shutting their borders as COVID-19 spread across our region and beyond. Right now, every day seems to bring more incremental easings of border controls or promises to do so. But Asia Pacific's new travel landscape is still a work in progress. So on part five of our two years of travel disruption series, we're delighted to welcome Singapore-based Brent Anderson, who's the Regional General Manager of South and Southeast Asia for Tourism Australia. We're going to be discussing all things travel and tourism in a favorite destination of Southeast Asian travelers, Australia, which is now open for vaccinated visitors. So, Brent, thanks for coming on to the show. How are you doing today and how are things down there in Singapore? I'm, I'm doing very well and thank you very much for asking and having me on the show. Um, Singapore is its normal. It's uh, just after three o'clock local time and the skies are darkening. So we may have some ominous thunder, but it shouldn't affect the mood of the whole show. <laughs> Pretty similar here in KL. We've got, the, we've got some darkened skies too. So, Brent, we've got plenty to pack in. So let's rewind. Let's go back pre-pandemic, Brent. Which were the key inbound markets from Southeast Asia to Australia? before COVID-19 and what were the most popular destinations? Um, If we go back to 2019, which was a a pretty successful year for us, uh, Singapore, Malaysia and India from Southeast Asia and India from the the broader region were the key markets we focus on as Tourism Australia um, in this part of the world. Um, We were just absolutely powering. We'd come off one of the most successful years we'd ever had. We were the fastest growing region and we were um, now the second biggest region for Tourism Australia in terms of our our country groupings that we work on. So things were looking very, very positive. And um, yeah, then we hit 2000 at the end of 2019. Yeah, exactly. And that was, of course, the the bushfires, uh, which were all over social media in Southeast Asia and across the world. You know, I remember um, being in the UK and watching the news um, over Christmas and seeing it was almost kind of like post-apocalyptic scenes with the the sky, you know, crazy colours. So at that point, you know, coming off of that, what was Tourism Australia's plan to counter that kind of impact of the black summer? Just to put it in context, sixty uh, percent of consumers from this is based on our research to see the impact had thought that up to twenty five percent of Australia had burnt. Um, so it was a fairly dramatic impact upon our brand and our wildlife. Um, not to mention the human cost and the animal cost and the ecosystem cost, etc. So our job really switched to telling the world one fire is actually part of our ecology in Australia, but also just how quickly that recovery occurs within the Australian ecosystem and. And then on the human side and specifically the tourism industry, really supporting those businesses that operated in those regional areas affected um, and through them, the communities that relied on tourists coming in and spending their dollars, etc. So it was a fairly quick turnaround in what we needed to do, but we had two very clear objectives, uh, restore consumer confidence and uh, really highlight how regeneration was occurring, but also support those businesses um, at the time. And then, of course, immediately COVID-19 came, into, came onto the scene. What were your thoughts in those first early days, Brent? And where and when was your last trip before the great shutdown? 
Well, I actually was in Melbourne watching the T20 Women's World Cup, which we couldn't have scripted better because it was an Australia-India final and we'd launched this campaign led by women in India to support. And, and we really used cricket as a moment where we're going to have a lot of attention and just uh, you know, step changing our arrivals and our appeal in the market. So it was a really nice moment to be there celebrating at Australia One, whether or not that was the perfect script, I, I still don't know, but we just kept going from strength to strength as an organisation and a region. And then this little background echo of, hey, there's this virus that's starting to close down cities, etc., was there. So it was a bit, you know, I think we were a bit naive. We didn't think it could be anything like this, uh, what it has been. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody did at that point, right? I think, you know, I remember we were interviewing another Aussie, Stuart McDonald. Um, we had him on the show a couple of weeks ago and, you know, he then, right at the beginning of the pandemic, said, oh, I don't think leisure travel is going to recover for two years. And at that time, it seemed like such a pessimistic thing to say. It seemed like so unrealistic. And yet here we are um, two years later. So what have really been your challenges in promoting Australia? Obviously, you know, for the last couple of years, Australia has been pretty closed off to inbound tourism. How as a tourism board, do you then carry on promoting Australia? Um, what kind of tactics, what kind of challenges have you been doing to try and keep it as a top of mind destination for travellers within Southeast Asia? The first thing we did was look at you know, those organisations that were dependent on us being a leader and playing a leadership role. So we very quickly, under the direction of the federal government, we can actually work in the domestic market. So we started running domestic marketing campaigns. And the rationale behind that was to keep those businesses alive, keep Australians holidaying in Australia. They'll help keep the turnstile, they'll help, help drive investment to keep refurb programs and all those things working. And that was really about being ready for when the borders did open. At least there was product that survived. They still had staff to provide service, etc. From an international point of view, it was actually um, you know, a bit of make it up as you go. We, we, we tried things, we tested and learned in a lot of markets as well. Um, what we very quickly realised that of all the globally recognised brands for Australia, we were the only one that was still out there. And um, we made a very conscious decision to keep marketing throughout the pandemic. And in the early stage, it was very much a, oh, we, we hope to see you soon, this will all be over soon, etc. And towards about the six-month onward mark when we were starting to see these predictions of more than 12 months um, it became very much about engaging and entertaining and sending messages of hope out to our audiences and by and large most of the programs were really effective in that sense. So tell us then what kind of learnings can you apply from the domestic campaigns that you have been running to then market Australia internationally um, you know did you see certain themes coming out that you think can also be applied um, for the international markets? I think um, the key thing for us, there was a, a two-way learning. So in, uh, we didn't have any established partnerships within the Australian domestic market. So at the time, a lot of our teams focused on building those up with airlines, travel agencies and operators, etc. Um, so that learning went in there. We also really had a, a step back look at our, our whole approach to our research. We're a very research-driven organisation that's then enhanced with local insights. So that allowed us that, that moment, what 
were those things coming through. We identified, you know, sustainability was a really big issue that consumers were starting to tap into with the whole global warming discussion, et cetera. And they just wanted to make sure that they were traveling for better, um, not only their improvement, but also better for the places they're visiting. Also that creativity, you know, it, it, it's the one thing that is, is pretty special about Australia. People find a way to do something or find a solution for a problem. They, they knuckle down and get stuck in, et cetera. So we started seeing a lot of creative efforts being put into developing new products and, and that. So that, that gave us hope for when we open, we're going to have a whole lot of new things to show off. Um, and then probably from a personal point, what I really enjoyed was the understanding of the, our First Nations, the Australian Aboriginal Indigenous population and what they could bring to the tourism industry, but also other things. We, we saw evidence during the bushfires that you referenced earlier of land that had been turned over to traditional land management practices led by our First Nations people. When the bushfires went through, they were hardly affected because you know, they evolved a 60,000-year-old process of developing this. So I think getting those stories ready, driving research, understanding your consumer first and where you're going to plug them is something that we've probably done over the last two years and come out a lot stronger and ready for. Tourism Australia marketed very heavily, as you mentioned there, Brent, to the Australian market for obvious reasons over the past two years. How will the reopening now impact Tourism Australia's domestic marketing approach as opposed to its international marketing? Um, look, I'll put that in context. You go where the opportunity is and the opportunity was to get Australians holidaying at home. Um, for us, there's eight states and territories who all have their own tourism boards exactly like us with remits for international and domestic. Uh, we will pivot a lot more back into the international. That's where we can help uh, grow the tourism industry and make a difference. It's, it's always about even our market choice. We, we're active in 15 markets around the world. And that's because that's where, for the money we get, we can make a difference. Um, so we will still support as that recovery, it's, it's slow. We will still support domestic. Uh, we will support our state partners who have run voucher schemes and their own very successful campaigns, etc. But the ultimate goal for Tourism Australia is to be back um, 100% focused on international. Absolutely. So, I mean, Australia is now open. Hooray! Uh, which must be fantastic news for you. You must have been thrilled uh, to have got that announcement. But from the outside, at least, it seems like there was relatively little lead time between that announcement and then the actual reopening. So how did you go about planning your strategy and making sure that tourism stakeholders, you know, both within Australia, but but also the ones selling Australia are ready to welcome back travellers? So the only word that I've used over the last two years that I hate more than COVID is scenario. So we just ran scenario, scenario, scenarios. Um, At first, in this part of the world, we're extremely reliant on our partners, and that's airlines, banks, uh, traditional travel agents, OTAs, etc. So we looked at our whole guidelines around our partnerships and made them very, very partner friendly. We knew we're quite unique in an entity that we have cash to spend, and we knew these businesses were actually cash flow net negative refunding people's travel plans etc so for us it was very much going to our partners and saying we don't know when but when we are ready we've got this uh, ready let's plan for that and then in terms of the notice we got we were lucky here in Singapore because we saw with the trans-Tasman bubbles that they got very short notice so we just started picking dates and you know when that date 
evolved. Okay, next date, next date. So every month we were updating media plans, etc., and having our partners ready to go. I think the other successful thing is probably the standout program from a distribution point of view for us was the Aussie Specialist Program. So these are agents that enter, enroll in a training program. We have dedicated teams around the world and they sit down and do normally face-to-face training, but it had moved on to Zoom, etc. In 2019, we did 32,000 separate training sessions around the world. Um, last year, we did 80,000. Um, so really getting like your beach body ready for summer. Uh, we got our destination and our distribution partners ready. So they've got uh, armed up with a whole lot of new products. They know all of the different entry requirements from a federal and state level in Australia. Um, and we really see with the consumers just being a bit wary, travel agents specifically playing a really key role in giving that confidence you can get to Australia. There's a few hoops. These are the, all of them. Here's your checklist. And now you can go and have a great holiday. I think one of the things that everybody around the world has learned, I have to say, I, I've learned this, Brent, during the, the pandemic, is just the, the way that Australia works politically and the way that the different states have, have powers over certain things, particularly their own state borders. We've seen that over the past two years. Now, as Australia moved through its vaccination program and started to set dates for, for reopening, it seemed pretty clear that uh, New South Wales and Queensland, Victoria w- would lead that. But Western Australia at that time didn't seem as though it was going to be open for some time. Western Australia has now said that it will reopen on the 3rd of March. How important is that for attracting back Southeast Asian tourists and particularly VFR travellers to Australia from our region? Um, it, it's incredibly important. When If you look at a map of Australia, Western Australia itself is almost 50% of the, the country continent. Uh, so it's a huge destination and its proximity. Um, it allows us to keep and compete in that that short break, uh, short uh, haul market as well. Whereas the East Coast, we compete more in the mid haul markets. So for us, that announcement, the first flight leaves Singapore tonight. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. And the familiarity, the first wave of travellers that we see coming back, and we've seen this with the opening of just Singapore citizens back in late November, is VFR. You know, it's travel for love. We've been surprised. There's been a bit of corporate, but it's very much reconnecting for, with family and friends that's leading it. Um, and just now, you know, two to three months after that Singapore citizen opening and the broader opening, we're starting to see the holiday traveller coming through. And how does that work in terms of reconnecting with the airlines, really? Because you do, I mean, if you look at particularly from Kuala Lumpur, for example, or from Singapore, you had frequent flights going into Perth. But getting those capacities back, getting those frequencies back, will that take time? It definitely will. And we we have a bit of an adage. uh, We're very dependent and very close to our airline partners across the region. Um, We have a bit of an adage, you can't drive to Australia, um, which is not really an adage, it's a truth. So the airlines and how they scale back, these are massive capital and uh, personnel decisions that they need to make. So our job is to build the demand so that they want to take that risk and, and put on the service. The first stage is reconnecting destinations. Singapore, where I am, actually connects to more parts of Australia than any other country in the world. Um, Malaysia is not far behind that. So getting that connection up and running and then helping them to make that decision, do I go from three to four frequencies a week, five, and then in some cases, you know, daily, double daily, etc. So we're seeing some early data from the Citrium database. Um, this month, we hit about 45%. April, we hit 67, May we hit 72. And these are all forward-loaded flights that can be cancelled. My job's to fill them. 
And at this point of year, Brent, you're moving into Australian autumn, into winter. Would this normally be a busy time or would this be a, a slower period from Southeast Asia? Um, Southeast Asia is unique that our biggest peak is actually that May, June, almost you know, June is winter because of that desire to go and have some cold weather, to experience some of our snow fields, to eat good food and wine and wear your puffy jackets, etc. Because, you know, Singapore similar to KL, 24 to 32 with a chance of a thunderstorm every day. So we really are seeing that as the big major peak that's approaching. I've got a couple of school holidays coming up across the region as well. And in Indonesia, the Lebaran and school holiday period, just um, like Hari Raya is for KL. So those will actually drive that first uh, wave of holiday visitors that we see. And it's it's a fairly broad audience. We're starting to see families, um, couples, um, quite a lot of high yield business coming through as well. So it's good. So recently, uh, we've seen this announcement of a 40 million Aussie dollar uh, budget campaign to attract Singaporeans, which is fantastic, I guess, for the Singaporean market. Um, but why your focus Singapore? You know, is that to do with you said Singapore has one of the most number, the highest number of connections to Australia? Um, and, you know, what is going to be the focus of this campaign? Okay. I'll just clarify, it's 4 million. You're doing what I do when I ask for money, but putting a couple of extra zeros in. Um, but in the context, you know, that that's almost four times our normal budget if we say we've got six months to spend that to the end of our financial year. So it's a significant fund. And you're right, it, it does seem a bit funny for a market that produces well above its weight at half a million visitors a year. But the whole region is so critical to re- recovery. One, the shorter lead time, even in the early days where we normally had a booking to travel window of 30 days in Singapore, we're seeing to two months. Um, that's pretty common across the region of what we're expecting. So a doubling of that between when I, I actually make the booking to when I travel. If that happens in the rest of the world, um, we're not going to see the northern hemisphere visitors coming back as fast as we need them to. The other aspect is just you know geography. Um, Singapore, KL are really critical for me to restore that last leg of flights that we talked about earlier so that the UK, the Europeans, North Asia can actually transit through these ports into Australia and connect. So strategically, it's absolutely critical we get these two hubs, especially firing up. So looking back over the past two years, Brent, you've talked in some detail about how you've developed your strategy, how you've had to respond to you know, circumstances none of us really ever expected to happen. But as you look back, how has this sort of strategy changed to where we are right now? And, and what kind of things have surprised you? What hasn't surprised you? And, and which market segments from our region do you think might be quicker to come back this time than perhaps might have been the case two years ago? If I talk about our engagement with consumers, what we saw really early with everyone in lockdowns was the engagement in our digital. Um, so your view through rates were going through the roof. People were looking for that escapism. They had time because they weren't commuting in the various traffic uh, snarls they had, et cetera, to watch the whole video, et cetera. So that engagement and that sharing of the stuff we were putting out. And we launched a number of campaigns like with love from Australia and all that. And the, the tonality changed to be a bit more entertainment um, while still, you know, keeping our pillars, et cetera, within the messaging, but just to support people going through and say, we're really looking forward to welcoming you back. In terms of the research we did, we looked at every part of our business. So the Aussie Specialist program was a surprise. Just there was agents who were dialing in who were 
laid off work and were making a living, um, you know, doing food delivery, other jobs, etc. But they were so keen to come back in the industry and they saw having that qualification and that latest knowledge was really critical to them being able to come back into the industry, as well as there's a, a beautiful people to people link within our uh, business where, you know, catching up with friends that you've been on for meals with and just feeling like part of something as well, whilst we were all quite isolated. The target audience work we've done, um, I won't go into a lot of uh, specific detail, but it's it really got what were the triggers, the, the research we do every month in terms of consumer confidence, what were the triggers that tell us when we should turn on our marketing and how hard we should turn it on, but also what were those consumers seeing. So um, if I use Southeast Asia, we've seen a massive growth in annual leave acute accumulation and we've seen flexible policies from companies allowing them to carry over one year's entitlement to others so there's actually a, a longer length of stay opportunity there then we also saw massive savings where people weren't going to work and buying lunch weren't able to go out and spend on dinner so uh, in Singapore you've seen a growth in luxury car sales and home renovations because this money was burning holes in pockets my job's to get that those savings towards that reward um, holiday so the team and I are really focused on how do you reward yourself for all the things you gave up uh, during COVID, the hard lockdowns, the soft lockdowns, the the mask wearing, the taking ART tests um, frequently, et cetera, and go and have a great holiday in Australia. So we very much moved to what's the opportunity. There, there's enough doom and gloom coming in at us. So what was always get to the crux, what does that tell us about an opportunity to go after? Yeah, that's a big challenge, isn't it? Because one of the things that was so heavily focused by all tourism marketers around the world was this move towards experiences before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, we've seen this shift back towards possessions, people buying products again. And now it's got to move back to experiences. So there are some challenges, aren't there, that move from products and possessions back to experiences? I kind of agree with you, but I also just think people want experiences because they've got enough. And I could be generalizing here, but when I, I talk to people I know who are planning travel, they want to, especially Australia's big wide open spaces, it's nature, it's wildlife, couple that with good food and wine, which is always extremely important uh, for our travelers. There's a sense of adventure. Uh, if we look at you know a segment we're really seeing or an experience we're really seeing is self-drive. And if you think how crazy you are sitting in your apartment in KL of seeing those same four walls and the chance to get in a car, which is your own private little bubble um, and drive around and just pick your own adventure. Um, it's absolutely going through the roof in terms of demand and inquiries we're seeing. Um, and 50% of Malaysian visitors and 50% of Singaporean visitors pre-COVID would actually go on a self-drive. So we, we're seeing that come through and people want to escape. You can see just this, this appreciation for the outdoors um, that's come through COVID where you were able to uh, go out for exercise here in Singapore. The Facebook group for hiking in Singapore had 15,000 members and then during COVID went over 100,000. People started appreciating nature a lot more. So I think in terms of tapping into that psyche, the sustainability message and traveling for good, um, the creative, we've got you know, luxury tents and little small homes in unique wide open spaces, et cetera. So I think there's, there's going to be an interesting change in the dynamic of what the consumer demands. And I don't think it's going to be mass to start with. I think people are really going to go and treat themselves to something that, hey, I, I got through all the, the hassle of COVID and I'm going for a great holiday to thank myself. And this is what my new interest might be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in, in a way, you've got your, your work cut out, but in, in another way, hopefully, it would be a little bit easier, right? You know, because people, 
like you say, have, have not had this the opportunity to spend the money, have been accumulating this annual leave, so therefore could go on these bigger, slightly more lavish trips than perhaps they, they would have done. And like you say, I'm sure Australia is the top of the bucket list uh, for many Southeast Asians. So have you got projections for inbound visitors to Australia for 2022? I mean, and this is something <laughs> Gary and I have discussed this many times about Southeast Asian countries and some countries, uh, Thailand in particular, love, love to set lots of projections and forecasts um, for 2022. Where does Tourism Australia sit on that? You know, have you got hard and fast targets or is it a, a kind of feeling of where you want to go? Um, look, we have targets around how we restore connectivity. That's the first step. We also at the beginning, uh, in terms of the domestic market, uh, got a lot of consultant about you know what could we do to stimulate what would the domestic market provide we exceeded their best case scenario by a hundred million room nights um, Australians just got out and traveled their own backyard uh, especially as the crisis um, and the closed borders continued in terms of our goals we've seen forecasts that aviation uh, capacity into Australia won't come back um, to the pre-pandemic levels until 2024 25 so whilst we we don't make forecasts and we will hit X number of visitors, we definitely want to beat that goal. And so that's where our focus is. We, we probably in this region play a little bit more down uh, towards the planning and booking stage of the purchase funnel uh, to some of our others. And so there's a big job for us to do there. In terms of would I make a prediction? If I, I don't know if I'd make a prediction, but if by the end of this calendar year, we were sev- sitting at 75% of the arrivals um, and corresponding spend from my markets, I'd be really, really pleased with that result. Now, it's no secret that the Chinese market was extremely important to Australia before the pandemic and was becoming increasingly so, not just for uh, tourism, but also for VFR, uh, your student market as well. The Chinese market, as every, every market around uh, Southeast Asia at the moment, is, is facing up to the fact Chinese tourists aren't coming back at the moment. When do you anticipate Chinese travellers returning and how will you actually be able to cover for, for their absence? Um, look, I think everyone in the world is missing the Chinese. They, they are our first, second and third market. They're so important for Australia. They're, they're massive. There's no clear direction on when that market will open up. There are different strategies of the government of how they believe they should protect their people. So we've got to respect that. Um, the opportunity for us is all of these other markets, uh, there's a different nuance to them looking at the opportunities there and looking at the broader markets that could be emerging that could have come out of COVID and be ready to travel etc we classify our markets you know Singapore is a very mature market slightly below that scale is Malaysia and then Indonesia is an emerging market so I'm quite fortunate in my region where our two emerging markets or as we call them rising stars are the the two fastest growing markets in the world pre-COVID for us and so we go after those opportunities as soon as China does open we will definitely go after it. Um, you can't walk away that the people-to-people connections, the strong VFR market that we get because of the Chinese population in Australia will help with that. And VFR is really important, not only driving tourism dollars, but helping fill those, those airlines that they then have other seats to sell to holiday visitors. And so let's change track a little bit and think about uh, travel the other way. I know that your your realm of expertise is into Australia, but I'm sure you've, you've probably got plenty of anecdotal um, knowledge about outbound travel. And of course, outbound travel from Australia to Southeast Asia is a really, really important market here. You know, to Bali is one of the top markets 
and to other countries within Southeast Asia as well, just because of the proximity. What are your thoughts? How do you see outbound travel from Australia um, to Southeast Asia recovering in 2022? Or will it recover? I think it's it's going to follow a fairly similar trajectory. So right now, Australians have uh, focused their holidays on domestically. There's a bit of nationalism, like supporting the other Aussies, etc. But there's always been this massive demand to go out, especially in the Southeast Asia region. I know if in Singapore, Australia was one of the fastest growing markets, not only in numbers of rivals, but also also length of stay. Bali dominates a lot of Southeast Asia holidays for Australians as well. I think, again, it's going to be the connectivity, that time frame, that confident consumer confidence, and then I think it'll just start uh, splurging. So we're hoping we see is you see a, a three to six months kind of early adopters movement and then you start getting um, big movements and hopefully there's the connectivity and the airline seats for them to get and there's the supply on the ground to support them as well. But yeah, the Aussies will be back out traveling, I, I would say midway through this year, you'll start seeing it, it exponentially growing. Brent, it's been fantastic to talk to you. We've covered a lot of ground today, just kind of summarizing what we've talked about today and, and maybe some other thoughts as well. What are you personally excited about for Australian tourism in 2022? I think, um, like I kind of alluded to, we, we've really got our house in order in terms of understanding our consumers and what are the, the offerings we have that would really motivate them to come. I think for Southeast Asia, I've been, obviously I'm biased. I'm a massive advocate of this region and its importance to the Australian tourism industry. I think we'll see that come through a lot stronger as well. And to, in terms of uh, the products, um, there's a bit of personal pride in seeing the growth of awareness of Aboriginal Indigenous products and their willingness to come and engage in this part of the world um, and I think that's that's a beautiful story to tell from both a social responsibility but it's just you know this culture is the longest continuing culture in the world and no one really knows about it so there's a new story to tell there the movement around sustainability and sustainable practices I got into tourism because it was a way to preserve natural areas and have them there just because they were beautiful to look at, et cetera, and derive some economic benefit to help protect them and have people and communities reliant on those places being beautiful for others to come and spend their money there. So I think that's going to be a key thing to watch as the new traveller emerges. Um, and then just I'm looking forward to going back to Australia and seeing a whole lot of the new products. Some people got really, really creative while we are there. So um, I keep talking about the small homes that are in remote areas. So they'd be pretty fun and just getting on a drive around um, and exploring. When's your next trip back? Um, I'm looking at uh, May. We have our big Australian Tourism Exchange, which is the biggest uh, inbound tourism event that we've run. And it's a flagship for our organisation. And I think we're trying to bring everyone we can down there just to, hey, we can see each other face to face again it's, it's pretty special and I've got family bounced around most of Australia so um, they're overdue for a visit as well plus it's winter like I said I, I want to experience a bit of cold weather great that Australia are planning to have the the event as well in person I think it's it, it's so special like you say for everybody to, everybody really appreciates these kind of in-person trade events now and you know before perhaps they were something not that not that travel agents were spoiled by them but you know they were a bit casual about them, but I think now everybody really cherishes like these opportunities. 
I think it's the the energy. You know, we, we're a people business. And I know the first day coming back into the office in Singapore that I had three of my other colleagues, we have you know, office normally of 28 people, but I just had so much energy because there was someone around. And then now when we're inviting people down to the event and, and planning a, a big welcome, we're open again event, just seeing the smile and then people talk about their favorites in that specific destination. Oh, is this place still open? Can we go and do it? And I think, it, you know, on a business practical sense, showing that these businesses are still operating, they've still got the service standards you expect, they've got um, all of these features, plus the new things. I think that's really important for us to give our distribution partners and the travel agents so they can pass it on to their clients. I've been there, this is still good, etc. They maintained it well while the borders were shut. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to the end of part five of our two years of travel disruption series. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed with Brent or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every single episode, including this one where we chatted with Brent, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And please remember, if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and a review as that helps other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week for a roundup of the latest travel developments in Southeast Asia. And there have been a lot of them. But we look forward to seeing you then.